Man with Emanuel Lee's can-do programming. Scientist the Human Podcast commencing. Welcome to this episode of Scientist the Human Podcast. I'm your host, Simranjit Singh, and I'm here with none other than Derek Lowe, who is a medicinal chemist, a blogger, and oh. author. Uh, he is currently a director in, in chemical biology and therapeutics at Novartis Institutes of Biomedical Research. And Derek is also the author of a popular blog called In the Pipeline. Derek, welcome to the show. Oh, yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm uh, really excited that we could uh, chat. Um, you know, um, when I first started this uh, podcast, I was actually going around to, to different professors' offices and meeting them in person. But then when I wanted to kind of uh, connect with people further away and ended up being more virtual and now by virtue of the pandemic all of my podcasts have been virtual so <laughs> it yeah. has been uh kind of a change but uh you know i'm really happy that we could connect virtually and uh and you know just kind of uh have a chat yeah yeah for sure yeah i enjoy doing this sort of thing there's uh there's always a lot to talk about which is actually kind of why i started the blog because it turns out that you can write about drug discovery and medchem and keep it going for years. Yeah, and uh, you definitely have a, a, a penchant for that. Um, and I mean, you've covered so many different topics uh, on your blog, and and uh, you know, why, why don't we start there? Uh, sure. So yeah, so your blog in the pipeline. Um, you know, great reading, uh, great writing. <laughs> And so you you mentioned that uh, as part of the reason you, that that you started it was to just kind of you have the opportunity to discuss so many different things going on. Yeah. So are there any? So I know you kind of talk about uh, drug discovery as a whole, different um, different drugs, um, and kind of dive into different uh, technologies. But is there any particular topic that kind of jumps out at you as something that you're most excited to to discuss on the blog yeah that's a good point i think that some of the the breaking news stuff falls into that category and that may just have more of an urgency to it but overall as you notice i do kind of wander from topic to topic and that's that's deliberate because i try to do some you know if I do a hardcore chemistry type post, then I'm not going to do another one the next day. Or if I do one that's all like about patents and IP, I'm not going to do that again. So I kind of want people to feel that if they didn't find, you know, the latest post to be anything particularly interesting, they can be pretty sure that it's not going to be like that tomorrow. Now, maybe it'll be something else uninteresting, but it, it will be something else. But for the most part, I just keep a folder in my literature manager. I use a freeware program called Zotero. I just keep a folder marked blog fodder. And as I find interesting looking papers and news items, I drop them in there. And when it's, sometimes I have an idea, okay, tomorrow I have to write about X, but other times I just sit down and open up the blog fodder and take a look at it and see, all right, what's something that I haven't written about much recently that's interesting? Yeah, so it sounds like you're, uh, what you're most interested in the moment is something that you haven't visited in a while. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I don't mind, for example, writing the posts about patent issues, but I can tell that 
that's not everyone's favorite topic in the world. Um, I think you either find that stuff really dry or it's like, you know, that's more interesting than I thought. And I'm kind of in that latter camp, although I would not like to be a lawyer. <laughs> but so I, I definitely, you know, keep the keep the pedal back on that one. And I know that not everyone is a synthetic organic chemist who reads the blog. So if I do a big post on some new reaction, I'm not going to hit them over the head with more of that. But, yeah, there's there's a lot of interesting stuff out there. I mean, when I started the blog, to be honest, I've told people this a lot. I thought I would run out of material in about a year. So I'm obviously wrong about that. Yeah, uh, especially since you, you, you kind of have a... Uh, a self-renewing well uh, of uh, things to draw from because you know academic literature is always growing. There's new, oh, yeah. there's new news items all the time, right? And right. Yeah. So it's uh, absolutely. Yeah, it's a it's a great place to to kind of draw from. And yeah. so, so you, the, what, yeah, go on. Oh, go ahead. I feel a little bit like an old New Yorker cartoon. George Booth, who passed on recently, he was 90 something years old, but he had one where a guy's looking at his TV and the newscaster saying, You know, this is John Thompson saying that's all there is, there is no more until tomorrow when there will be more. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, and so you've had the blog going since uh, 2002, right? Oh, God, yes. I, I would not have believed that if you told me that in 2002. Not for a minute. Yeah, well, the, your 20th anniversary. I mean, congratulations yeah. on that. That That is that is quite an accomplishment. And I, I can't believe it. 20 years of blather. It's amazing. <laughs> it's a good thing I type quickly. Yeah, uh, but I mean, it's a uh, you know, well-constructed blather that you know, people seem to enjoy. <laughs> So, I think I'll use that as a tagline. Very low, <laughs> well-constructed letter. <laughs> yeah, feel free. Uh, but yeah, so o- over 20 years, I mean, since 2002, how would you say um, your your blogging has, has changed or has it changed? Is, have you kind of, yeah. you know, changed your approach or, just, you, you know, the topics you write about? Yeah, I wonder that too. It's funny because when I go back and read earlier stuff, I would think, man, that's pretty good. I don't know if I'm writing stuff that that's that is this interesting now. The good thing is, though, I first started feeling this just a few years into the blog. And then I realized that all the old stuff seems kind of interesting to me, almost all of it. And it's because I don't immediately remember writing every word of it. Mm. So I'm approaching it a little bit more cold. Now, in the case of something that was, you know, 16, 17 years ago, I'm maybe approaching it pretty cold, but I think that's where that effect comes from. So when I when I try to, you know, factor that out, the blog seems to sound a lot like it has for a long time. So either I'm in a rut or I have a very consistent authorial voice. <laughs> yeah, um, I'd probably go with the latter on that one. <laughs> yeah, I, I write a lot like I speak. People have told me that when I get interviewed. I remember doing some uh, interview hit a few years ago, and when we finished up, the people recording said, okay, that makes it easy. We're not going to have to edit anything out of that. <laughs> so I write like I speak. So reading the blog is kind of like being stuck in the elevator with me. Yeah, that's not uh, such a bad thing. 
yeah that's uh that's great and i mean yeah over time you know of course there maybe there could be some changes or in your case maybe there is a profound consistency and yeah. that is uh, you know part of part of the charm of your blog part of the the, the voice that people enjoy and like you yeah. said you 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 speak the way you write or you write the way you speak and so yeah. it kind of uh you know it makes sense why why, why your yeah. your blog is yeah. so so well, enjoyable i think that's one of the things that you need if you're writing in this format is a distinctive voice and probably a consistent one too because that will keep people coming back if they like it and it will keep people away permanently if they don't like it of course you know that's the other thing but you would probably keep them away too if every time they took a look at your stuff it was something totally different that was it was something you know long and convoluted and dour or something really quick and light and breezy or something that sounded great or senseless or stupid way you know different every time people aren't going to come back for that so that's my niche and i'm never going to have you know 30 million followers reading this <laughs> there aren't 30 million people who are interested in this stuff as far as i can tell <laughs> But there still are a lot of people who are interested in it and probably quite a few who are interested and haven't come across the blog yet. So, hey, come on down. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, um, yeah, so your blog has – so when you first started it, was it kind of uh, completely independent online and, and then eventually made its way to, to the science website or, or how, how did that come about? Yeah, I started out on Blogspot back in 2002 because it had such a minuscule barrier to entry. That's what got me started doing it. I was starting to read some of the early blogs and enjoying that, and I thought, I could do this. In fact, I would like to do this. I've always enjoyed writing and speaking about these sorts of topics and venting my opinion, so there it was, an opportunity right in front of me. That went on for a bit, and then... A fellow who was running another domain called Caranti.com, and you have to be a pretty long-time reader to, to go back to the Caranti days, but Caranti.com was attempting to turn into sort of a portal site with a lot of biomed and tech stuff. That didn't quite materialize. There used to be several blogs on it, of which I was one, then those gradually disappear. Then the portal stuff kind of decayed. And after a while, I looked around and realized that I was pretty much the only thing left on the domain. Mm -hmm. And I never really found out what happened there, but it was obvious that I was going to have to find another home because there, there really were not the resources to keep it running, much less to improve anything. But just keeping it running was, was not so easy. I'd had several offers over the years to move the blog and its content over, but none of them seemed quite right until the uh, the folks at AAAS and Science contacted me. I thought, yeah, yeah, that could work. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, seems like it's a it's a good home uh, for 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 the blog, and it has been. It has yeah. been. They have very good technical support on the back end, and. They made it clear up front that this would be complete editorial independence, and it has been. No one has ever batted an eye about anything I've written, no matter how bizarre. Mm. Well, that, that's great. I mean, 
you always hear stories of uh, uh, smaller kind of independent projects being uh, acquired by larger <laughs> corporations and uh, suddenly the corporation has an opinion, yeah. uh, right? So that's that's pretty amazing that you, you've kind of been able yeah, to maintain the editorial freedom, yeah? Yeah, they told me, they said, you know, we think that your freedom to express yourself like this is actually one of the key features of the blog, and I agreed with that, and I was happy to hear it from them. Yeah, that well, that's that's great, and and another thing I was really curious about is uh, the the name of your blog in the pipeline. Uh, of course, uh, you know, being in science and now in, in, in drug discovery, it kind of uh, I I put my own kind of you know preconceived notions on what what, what that means, but you know. W- what where where did you come up with that title in the pipeline and 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 how, how what, what was your goal in terms of reaching the public with that title oh yeah well i wish i could take credit for it but <laughs> it was it was something that someone else came up with and i thought yeah that's pretty good because it's a general phrase but also has the specific connection with the drug pipeline and it's vague and general enough where just about anything could march under that banner so i thought let's do it so I, I can't I can't take credit for that, but it's been a, a perfectly good title that served me well. Yeah, yeah, it is a it is a good title, uh, and uh, you know, in, in terms of the uh, the different aspects of uh, of drug drug discovery that that yeah. you end up talking about, you know, different different uh, phases of the pipeline, I guess you can call it, different parts of the yeah. Yeah. of the drug discovery pipeline. Uh, so. In in your uh, day job, let's call it, uh, <laughs> where 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 are you in in that pipeline? Oh yeah, well I tell people that if you're going to stick with the pipeline metaphor, I'm back where the water is starting to seep out of the bare rock, you know, way <laughs> back there. And I've always been back in like very early stage research, you know, trying to come up with new targets or being there when the assay is being put together for some new project or right when screening hits start to emerge and we start to see if there's any sense in them. That's as far as I've been. I have in my career been on projects that we handed off to clinical development, but I don't think I've ever had anything go past phase two, maybe not even phase one now that I think about it. And in recent years, I haven't really been on projects that are headed toward the clinic. I've been on really weird, difficult ones that are a lot of fun to work on, but no one expects them to generate a clinical candidate by the end of the third quarter, if you know what I mean. Yeah. But I've, I've worked in a lot of different therapeutic areas over the years. Yeah, uh, so early discovery, and so you're saying that not... Uh not too much of what you've worked on has successfully made it past clinical trials, which really kind of it speaks to the difficulty of drug discovery, it right? Does. And it speaks to uh, just in general what the success rate is, and it's it, it quite low. Yeah, yeah. And that to me is the central fact of the drug industry. Everything that seems weird or hard to explain about the way the drug industry works. I think almost all of those things tie back to that 
very high failure rate, probably around 85% of everything that goes into the clinic. And, of course, that number doesn't take into account the number of things that never even make it into the clinic. And I've certainly worked on a lot of those. There's no other industry like it. There's really not. I mean, what I tell people is, you know, 85% of Boeing's airplanes, I suspect, can leave the ground. 85% of Toyota's cars can roll down a road. 85% of Pizza Hut's pizzas are as good as they're ever going to be. 85% of our stuff crashes and burns. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I think uh, (laughs) that's usually uh, one of the justifications uh, given for how how uh, expensive uh, drugs end up being. Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. Is that uh, they have to... It's not a bad one. Yeah. It's not a perfect rationale, but it's yeah. not a bad one. You could definitely start there. Mm-hmm. I would tell people, look, if you want to know why your drugs are so expensive, it's me. <laughs> I have been working in the business now. Well, maybe a few other people like me, but I've been working in the business now since fall of 1989. And I have never put anything on a pharmacy shelf. Yeah, and uh, that's not uh, that's not a slight uh, on you personally. Yeah. <laughs> that's well, just I, the I'm that's just the nature the nature of research, the nature of drug discovery. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's why I tell people is that it's not necessarily because I'm a bozo. It's just <laughs> really very hard to discover drugs. Yeah, and people, people don't like hearing that over and over, but it's true. Yeah, that's definitely something that uh, I've gotten more exposure to in, in the yeah. last ha- half year or so. So coming out of my PhD and working in dr- drug discovery uh, at Arvinus uh, has been—it's been pretty eye-opening. Learning quite a lot about uh, how targets are selected and just kind of how things move. Through the pipeline, yeah. right? Through through right. On, on onward to clinical trials, and uh, the success rate, as we discussed, is uh, right. it's pretty low. But you know those uh, those few percentage that you know are hits and make it through end up helping potentially a lot of patients. Uh, Absolutely, yeah. That's what keeps you going. And if you yeah. define yourself, well, this is this is a good thing you bring this up because I noticed this in my first few years in the industry. If you define yourself, your self-worth, as am I putting drugs on the pharmacy shelves, you're going to have a bad time in this business because that's such a rare event. And frankly, a good amount of that is out of your control. It really is. Time and chance happeneth to them all, as it says in the Old Testament. A lot of these failures are due to things that we did not and frankly could not anticipate. Son of a gun, it turns out this kinase is not as important in that disease as everyone thought. The only way to find out was to make an inhibitor for it. Or, oh boy, look at that. It turns out this enzyme actually does two other things in the body that we didn't know about, and now we're hitting them all. Or there's some weird tox when you do this at this compound, and we don't even know what the mechanism is. So this stuff will drive you crazy. If you take it all on your shoulders and decide it's your fault. And I saw people kind of washing out of drug discovery because they couldn't they couldn't stop doing that. They couldn't stop taking it personally when their great ideas didn't work. Most great ideas don't work. The success rate is something that you have to come to terms with. 
Yeah, that's a great point, and I think some of that might be um, a carryover from academia, you know, because mm-hmm. uh, in academia, the, the pursuit is always, okay, uh, at least yeah. in, in biology, right, it's always, okay, deeper biology, deeper understanding, let's, you know, get, make this discovery, publish a paper, and then if you are unable to do that or unable to do that to the level that you are expecting, you you feel like a failure. Right. 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 Yeah. No, it really is a carryover from academia. And there's, for, for organic chemists coming in to do drug research, there's another carryover that can really hurt them too. Traditionally, the industry has liked to hire people who've done very difficult synthetic organic chemistry, like total synthesis of natural products and things like that. And the reason for that is, of course, if, if you can put up with that work, you can put up with anything. I mean, mm. that's one reason. <laughs> and by that, I mean that you really have to deal with an awful lot of problems that just come at you from out of the blue. Holy crap. You know, my protecting group fell off. Oh, God, this racemized. Why doesn't this react? The one carbon homolog different compound reacts great. Why doesn't this? And on and on and on. So you have to solve a lot of widely varied problems that are coming at you all the time without warning. That really is good preparation for doing drug discovery. So that's why the companies have wanted that. But the problem is, is that in academia, that kind of work really reads a certain kind of chemistry. You end up doing very rarefied, cutting edge sorts of chemistry to try to get these reaction schemes to work and you know not have 110 steps in them but a natural product is never going to have just a few steps well not many of them you're not going to do that in industry right you're not going to start off on an 18 step preparation of some compound you'll be fired most compounds don't work you're not going to spend 18 steps making something that has a very good chance of not working what you're going to do instead is a whole bunch of reactions that some people end up thinking are beneath them because they have been doing uh, extremely tricky variations of the retro Zambezi rearrangement at step <laughs> 33. And then they find themselves doing a whole bunch of amide formations and uh, metal catalyzed couplings over and over. I wish I was able to uh, picture the reactions that you just described, but uh, it's it's been a while since I since I did organic chemistry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, let's t- let's put it this way: those reactions I just described are things that my grandmother, were she still with us, would be able to do with no problem. <laughs> they are not the sort of thing that you picture yourself doing as a highly trained organic synthetic jock working at the cutting edge of human knowledge sure and that's the realization that people have to come to mm-hmm. in academia chemistry is it's kind of like the motto under the metro goldwyn mayor line in the movies where it says ars gratia artis art for art's sake mm-hmm. chemistry for chemistry's sake why do we do it because it's hard because it's elegant because it's tricky because no one's done it before that's not why we do drug discovery. We do it to make a drug. Yeah. And if you, if the fastest, most straightforward, cheapest, easiest way to make a drug is by doing a bunch of reactions that you learned about in your first semester of sophomore undergraduate organic, 
great, perfect. Those <laughs> reactions are fast and cheap and easy, and they tend to work. That's the best. So chemistry is a means to an end. It's not an end in itself. Right, and I think so. That is uh, maybe an introduction to a description of uh, medicinal chemistry. Yeah. Would you say? Yeah. And it is. Yeah. Chemistry in the service of making medicines. And, of course, you can do some really elegant synthetic chemistry. You can do some elegant medicinal chemistry when you have an insight about the SAR or about why your compound's half-life or absorption has a problem and you manage to fix it, which is not all that common, but you manage to fix it. You can do some really satisfying, elegant work there. You have to take pride in those things because whether or not this compound makes a drug or whether or not this project turns into something great, that's largely out of your control, as I said. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, being comfortable with uh, doing your best at whatever that, that contribution, whatever that project at the moment is, uh, definitely is, is a way to kind of have, uh, let's say, emotional longevity in the drug discovery yeah, game. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, that's a good phrase. Yeah. That's a good phrase for it. Yeah. Now, at the same time, advice that I also give people when they're starting out in this business is walk around and talk to folks, especially people outside your area. For the chemists, they should go down and talk to the people running the primary assay or the, or the secondary selectivity screens. Find out how they do that. I think a good way to get people talking is just to say, you know, how do you guys do this in such a reproducible manner? Or what's the thing about this that you really wish were different? You know, what, what really gets on your nerves about doing this, these assays that would, you know, what would be great if you could do, but we don't know how to do. People will start talking about that, and you will learn a lot if you're listening. Talk to the people who do the animal assays, to the formulations folks, yeah. the toxicologists, all of the talk to the patent attorneys. You will learn an awful lot, and you will find yourself becoming more than just a synthetic organic chemist, which is essential because as you go on in your career, you need to be able to show a larger number of abilities and more understanding about what's going on. Otherwise, you will cripple yourself professionally and scientifically. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Um, being able to talk to people outside your own field of expertise and absorb their either concerns, questions, and their knowledge is uh, definitely a great way to increase your own understanding of, of the, oh, yeah. right? the, oh, your, yeah. the, the peripheries surrounding your field. Yeah. It helps a lot to be able to understand a bit about what these other folks are talking about. Mm -hmm. So when someone is saying, okay, you know, we got to, we got a problem, you know, that there's more than one uh, start codon in this protein and we're getting all sorts of different, uh, you know, the, it, it really messes up when you start talk, when you start dealing with, with introns and exons. You need to know what they're talking about. Yeah. Or if they say, okay, we need to express this in some other system other than uh, baculo SF9 because the glycosylation pattern's all messed up. That would be a good thing to know about. So all these things, if formulations tell you, okay, we have really tight tolerances on the micronization for this, 
that's a good thing to know what they mean. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, my background is uh, more on the biology side. So sure. for, for me, I definitely want to take opportunities to talk to, to chemists, for example, and then and learn more about what, what the medicinal chemists are doing. Uh, it would definitely we're loads of of fun yeah (laughs) yeah uh i can see that that's for sure (laughs) uh yeah so so derek you got your phd in organic chemistry at duke university it's true so i just wanted to uh kind of uh, ask a question from uh, our mutual friends our mutual friend is uh, ian taylor who is the chief scientific officer at arvinus Oh, yeah. So um, Ian was saying that I should ask you, you know, what makes Duke so great? <laughs> yeah, I may be the wrong person to ask that because, <laughs> yeah, it's, I don't know, without going into all the details, I was kind of glad to finish up my PhD and uh, spray gravel in the parking lot on my <laughs> way out. So um, it's, you know, a lot of people find that their PhD years, they can look back on many parts of it with nostalgia or those were the days, but there are a lot of parts of it where those were not the days. And I had quite a few of those days. I was, I was glad to, I was glad to finish it up and get moving on to something else. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm right there with you. I mean, I I finished (laughs) just earlier this year, but yeah, I was definitely, uh, uh, you know, learned a lot during the experience, but I, I was definitely happy to to move yes. on from there. Um, yes. In fact, it's to the point where if I run into someone, and it doesn't happen often, but it has, if I run into someone who just had such a great time while they were in grad school, I, I just look at them like they're some kind of alien being <laughs> that's just beamed down in front of me. <laughs> yeah, I I, uh, I I mirror that sentiment. <laughs> uh, but so your, your graduate work was in uh, organic chemistry. So something I was right. wondering is... Why organic? Why not inorganic? Yeah, I just found organic to be the kind of chemistry I was interested in. I mean, I grew up as a kid being interested in all kinds of science and stuff. Of course, I, I, I read huge amounts of things. I was really into, uh, I don't know, world history and things like that, too. But I always liked the sciences. And as a kid, I circulated around between chemistry and biology and uh, astronomy and whatever else I could get my hands on. And I'm still interested in all those things. But when I got to college, I I didn't even know what I was going to major in. And chemistry seemed like as good a thing as any. I mean, it was one of those sciences I liked, so let's go for it. And, you know, you take your first-year chemistry courses and say, yeah, okay, this is chemistry. You know, there's, it's pretty dry. First-year chemistry can't be anything but dry, honestly. <laughs> but when I got to second-year organic, I thought, huh, this is really pretty interesting. Putting these things together like this, all these crazy reactions, like a really big, complicated board game almost, but we don't even know all the rules and people keep yeah. inventing new pieces. And I think... When I heard about its application to drug discovery and the idea of structure activity relationships and making things that fit into proteins and stuff in the body to affect disease, I thought, oh, wow, that's just great. And I never really looked back. Yeah. And was there a kind of a particular moment or a particular 
class or professor that helped you make that connection uh, from mm. organic chemistry as an academic pursuit to how it could be utilized for drug discovery? Yeah, I mean, the organic professor at Hendricks College, where I did my undergraduate work in Arkansas, was a fellow named Tom Goodwin, who just recently retired. He was an excellent teacher of organic chemistry and also a man with a pretty warped sense of humor, which I appreciated greatly. <laughs> in fact, it was it was good to see that, that you could actually be a an efficient you know, very effective chemistry professor and still be, you know, that bizarre. <laughs> Good one was great. And I worked for him the summer after that uh, sophomore year. I worked for him and it was as a summer intern on a project trying to do some total synthesis of natural products. And the natural product was a, uh, was a chemotherapy agent called metanzine, pretty difficult structure. But I realized that the reason that we were making this was it had this medicinal activity. It did things to people and for people. You weren't just making this bizarre structure because someone, you know, just went up and drew something bizarre on the, on the whiteboard. Yeah. You were making it because this was something that was found in nature and it really had activity. And I think that's probably the first thing that got me thinking on this. Yeah, that is... Uh... That's a great way to, to kind of uh, get your interest peaked and, and be able to, because yes. you're learning all these things and then suddenly you discover, oh, there's this new way that I can apply what I've learned. Uh, it's, it's always exciting. Yeah. Uh, and of course, this was a fairly complex structure, mm-hmm. as was the one I worked on later in grad school. But you would look at it, even before I had done any, any real medicinal chemistry, you'd look at the thing and think... I wonder what would happen if this methyl group were gone. Mm. Or I wonder what happened if it were a trifluoromethyl instead. What if this oxygen in this ring over here were a nitrogen or an N-methyl? What would happen then? Those are all legitimate questions, but of course on these complicated structures, they're very, very hard questions to answer. So you would get this curiosity about, you know, here I am spending all this time trying to make this exact structure this exact structure and that's what you get tired of after a while but it i thought you know it'd be really neat to be able to make a bunch of other things that look like this and see what they do are they still chemotherapy agents are they still antibiotics what happens that's medchem right there yeah that's that's a that's a great summary of medchem yeah yeah and could you uh you kind of touched on this a little bit earlier where you suggested that it's always a great idea to talk to people that are outside your immediate uh, area of expertise. But could you offer some additional pieces of advice for up-and-coming chemists or up-and-coming biologists, people that are looking to to get into drug discovery and, and kind yeah. of see what it's about? Sure. Yeah, I've, I've touched on a couple of the ones that I make sure to tell people about. One of them is that you are doing applied science now, not science for science's sake, as, as a lot of academic research is. So you have to get used to the idea that, well, for chemistry, for example, the reason drug companies hire chemists is that is the only way that they have yet found to produce a whole bunch of drug-sized, interesting molecules to order. If they could find some other way to do it other than that, they would fire everyone immediately (laughs) because we're very expensive. Mm -hmm. We create horrible waste streams. 
I mean, everyone would like to be rid of us. We tell terrible jokes. So, <laughs> but there's no way around that. And various attempts have been made over the years to do that, to ditch all of us in favor of something else, but it's never worked out. Mm-hmm. But that's the thing. You're there as part of a larger goal, making a new medicine. And everyone in the other departments is there for that too. They're not there just because doing this activity is a noble thing all by itself, even though it may be. That's not why they're paying you. So that's the first thing is to figure out your place in the world and that you're not, as a synthetic organic chemist, even though you may be really, really good at it, you're only one piece of it. And these other pieces can let you down. You know, unexpected talks, weird, picking the wrong targets. So be ready for that. So I got to that one. The other one was to walk around and, and broaden your knowledge. That's that's key. Beyond that, I guess some of the other things I would say is never talk yourself out of an easy experiment. And I've come across other people saying that. Francis Crick in his memoir, Fort Mad Pursuit, he talks about that too. He says, basically, if you can get something to work without too much trouble just go ahead and try it see what happens and he says don't listen especially to negative predictions that you might have about why oh this probably won't work because of x and y and z you can talk yourself out of everything that way people have talked themselves out of nobel prizes that way just try it abandon your pride i mean there's there's some people have this idea that if they're really a top-class scientist, they should be able to walk up to that whiteboard, put their hands on their temples and think real hard till steam starts to come up out of their collar <laughs> and reach up and write down an amazing idea. <sighs> there it is, inspiration. That's bull. Hmm. A lot of great discoveries come from people who are like, well, I don't know if this is going to work or not, but let's try it. Or, you know, this has a pretty low chance of working, but let's try it. Isaac Asimov once said that the, uh, the sound of a real scientific breakthrough is not someone running down the hall yelling Eureka. It's somebody looking at a flask or a piece of paper and going, huh, huh that's funny. Right, Why exactly. That yeah. That's what it is. Yeah. That's what it is. So you have to, as I say, abandon your pride. Be willing to try some crazy, flaky stuff every so often. You know, just, I, I would say budget a little fraction of your time to trying ideas that are not necessarily on the main path of what you're doing or you don't necessarily think have a tremendous chance of working. One of the best compounds I ever made in my career was about one step from being a practical joke. Really? Yeah. yeah. I sent this thing in and it had a, a functional group in it that I admit is a little bit outside the usual run of MedChem. But I'd seen something like it in the Journal of Medicinal Chemistry, so I thought, hey, this looks like it would fit right into these compounds we're making. I'm going to make me some of those. So I did. And I got a personal letter, personal note, back in the old days of, you know, physical notes being delivered in those those inner office envelopes. Personal note from our head of chemistry saying, I don't want to see anything else like this from you. (laughs) So I waited until he went on vacation the next week to send in the other ones I'd made. And one of them turned out to be the best compound we had made on the project up till then, beat the potency and selectivity record, sent us off down a whole new avenue of exploration. They gave me stock options for it. 
turned into the down payment on my house in Connecticut, and all because I ignored my director of chemistry and made this weird compound. I've never forgotten it. Wow, so you, uh, you've heard it here first. Derek Lowe says to ignore your director. Yeah, and he did say that, and I do say that, but deliberately trying to make yourself come up with great results by doing that all the time is kind of like washing your car to make it rain. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It doesn't quite work in that direction. Remember, Murphy's Law, yep. that anything that can go wrong will go wrong, applies to itself. If you depend on Murphy's Law, Murphy's Law will go wrong. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's an interesting way of looking at it as well. A profound thought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I think we'll leave it there. I mean, uh, great conversation, Derek. Thank you so much. I uh, appreciate your time. I it. Yeah, um, I will definitely uh, definitely uh, link to the to the blog when the, when this is up. And uh, you know, sure. thanks so much for for your you know your conversation, words yeah. of wisdom, and for <laughs> for being on the show. Yeah, well, I was glad to do it. As you can see, I enjoy talking about this stuff. I can go on for an extended period. Well, we might have to have you on the show again. At a oh, later. yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> you know, there, there, there's more topics to be covered, that's for sure. Yeah, that's for sure. All right, thanks, Derek. Yeah, thanks a lot. Termination of current scientist the human episode. Stay breezy.